Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. My God, this week sucks. Or at least since like last Tuesday. As I sat down to tape this, and I'm taping super early on Thursday morning, 6.30 a.m., and the lead story on CNN is a Texas man was arrested at the U.S. Naval Observatory, which is Kamala Harris's official residence. 31-year-old Paul Murray of San Antonio. He was found with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, 113 rounds of unregistered ammunition, and five 30-round magazines. Like, I knew they were going to do crazy shit with a black woman as vice president. I can't say that I didn't think they were going to do this, but I thought it might take a little longer. Keep our vice president in our prayers. Jesus. We need some joy. We need some good news. Earlier this week, as I was wrapping up the podcast, the Oscar noms came out. I didn't get a chance to talk about them last week, but there are some really good names and films on this list. Viola Davis makes Oscar history. She's now the most nominated black actress ever. This year, she was nominated for Best Actress for her role as Ma Rainey in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Andra Day is also nominated in that category as Best Actress for her role as Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Congratulations to her as well. But for Viola, this is her fourth Oscar nomination. She also has a win. She won Best Supporting Actress for Fences. Remember her role in Fences where she cried and snot was everywhere and she didn't even wipe it? And I was like, ma'am, is committed to this role. My God, that's a hard movie to watch. It was really sad. Viola is also the only black woman with two Best Actress nominations. Some might find this something to celebrate. Viola had a different take. She told Variety... If me going back to the Oscars four times in 2021 makes me the most nominated black actress in history, that's a testament to the sheer lack of material that has been out there for artists of color. There are no black actors nominated for best actor. There are three for best supporting actor. Leslie Odom Jr. He played Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami. Phenomenal. He did a great job throughout the whole thing, but that closing scene of him performing, a change is going to come, masterful, powerful. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, yes, you, you better get nominated for something, bruh. And he did. So good for him. Also in the supporting actor category, Daniel Kaluuya. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I got comfortable like my mom and keep calling him Blanket. And the man got a real name, Fred Hampton. He got nominated for his role as Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah. And oddly enough, Lakeith Stansfield, who was the Judas in Judas and Black Messiah, he also got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. So it's like, who was the star of this film? Like Daniel and Lakeith are both supporting? Lakeith had the same question. Right after the announcements on Monday, he posted a message on Instagram said, I'm confused too, but fuck it. He has since deleted that post. Judas and the Black Messiah is getting lots of love from the Academy. They also scored nominations for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. And a fun fact, Judas and the Black Messiah is the first and only Best Picture contender whose entire group of nominated producers is Black. So good for all of them. 
There are also a few other notable mentions. One Night in Miami was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. The Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman. He's nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That film also got a nod for production design and costume design. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom got nominated for makeup and hairstyling. That's a really interesting choice because there were many, many articles written about Viola's makeup in that role. It was very smeared Vaseline. I think the intent was to make Ma Rainey look hot. I mean, like literally hot, like it's hot outside hot. But a lot of people didn't like that makeup. But she talked about it in the press because it got so much attention. And she said, you know, if you go back and, and look at, at Ma Rainey's, at pictures of Ma Rainey, like, you know, the makeup was a little disjointed. She wanted to be authentic about the look. But when I went and saw the pictures, I didn't see what Viola saw. I didn't see any pictures that would have inspired Viola's makeup look. But the hair was good. There was some joy in the Bachelor finale and the after show. That was unintentional joy. It wasn't supposed to be funny, but I laughed a good portion of the way through. (laughs) I missed the first 15 minutes of the finale. And when I did my recaps on social media, I mentioned like, you know, I missed the first part, but you know, here I am. And people were like, nah, 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 you got to go back. So, (laughs) and I'm not going to recap the whole thing because I did extensive recaps. I did like four posts on The Bachelor on um, Monday night, Monday night and Tuesday morning after it aired. This is the episode where there's two women left and they're going to meet the bachelor's family. The bachelor goes to meet with his family first and give them a breakdown of what's about to occur. The women are coming and I'm excited about them. And here's this is this one person and this is this other person. And I want you to meet them and ask them questions, blah, blah, blah. So he goes in the house to like, you know, greet his family. And it's his mother and his brother and the bachelor, Matt. He's a very clean cut specifically chosen to look safe and appeal to white people. The Bachelor has a brother who could be his twin. Dude had gold fronts and braids, which which no issue with either. It's just like, that's not typically the type of black person you see on ABC, but here we are. Matt walks in the house and his brother greets him. What up, Nick? No censors. I was like, ABC ain't got nobody black in production nobody black in the editing room because one sole singular black person would have been like, oh, we got to beep that. What up, Nick? On ABC. Are you serious right now? Get some black people on your staff. Damn it. I howled when I watched that. Oh my God. Whoever told me to go back and watch that first 15 minutes, thank you. Because I rewound that like 10 times. I was like, did he just... A closed caption had it saying, like, what up, fool? No, no, no. Nick and fool don't sound anything remotely alike. Oh, but the whole finale of The Bachelor is summed up in a nutshell of it took 25 seasons for ABC to go and find the safest Negro in America to be the black bachelor. And the person they chose has daddy issues and decided in the final episode that he couldn't commit. It's a whole show about a man going through reams of women to propose at the end. There's been 25 seasons of it. And this has happened before. He's not the first one. But dude was like, nah, like my dad was trash and I'm not sure I'm ready and I don't want to do to any woman what my dad did to my mom. And in fairness, in fairness, if you are not ready to get married, 
you absolutely 110% should not marry. I'm with him on that. But bruh, you also probably shouldn't be going on a show about finding a wife. Go find a therapist or just live in dysfunction. Don't advise it and plenty of people do it. You won't be alone there. But you don't go on a show called The Bachelor to look for a wife if you've got unaddressed commitment issues that leave you so terrified that the woman that you want to be your wife, you stand her up for a date the day before you're supposed to propose. And the chick he stands up is the racist chick who's been all over the news. We'd already pretty much concluded that he was going with the racist chick. (sighs) This girl, and I have no sympathy for her. It's a fucked up situation nonetheless. This girl went on national TV, was outed as a racist, has been dragged nonstop in the press for the last, what, month, six weeks or so? She's the new face of white girl racism. You did all that for a man who couldn't commit. You came on a show hoping to get a ring, and he was like, nah, but I got a rose for you. Can can we just go together? Literally, that was the end. He he offered her a rose. The same rose he'd been offering to her since she came on the show. That's what she got in the end, a rose. I was mad. I was like, this is a letdown. I invested all this time hate watching this show. And there's not even going to be a proposal. The after show made up for everything though. That was one of the finest hours of unscripted television I have ever seen. And no one was trying to be funny. That ish was comedy. We talked about all the racism and all the stuff that's happened off the show. This is the first time that Matt is doing like a public sit down interview about it. Chris Harrison, who's normally the host of The Bachelor, has been replaced by Emmanuel Acho. A very easy on the eye, wide brown, very easy on the eye, black man in an extraordinarily tight suit. I was like, just, just, just one inch. Just size matters. Just one inch. One more inch for him, please. Just around the bicep. Just poor thing like about to bust out the suit. And didn't unbutton his jacket when he sat. So it just, it made the tight suit even worse. I was like, why y'all set this man up like that? You put this beautiful man in this small ass suit. Why? Why? I was worried about his performance, which I talked about on here a couple times. And I was like, you know. The black people that white people tend to think of as safe are usually not black people that other black people accept. We also talked about him being Nigerian-American, how he may not fully grasp the nuances of race in America. We alluded to other black people grown up in America, but culturally come from a different background. They said some public things that you just like, what? We didn't know if he was going to be one. I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'm glad that I did. I was worried. But he did okay. He did say something about he was um, hashing the nuances of like racial insensitivity versus racial ignorance versus actual racism. And a lot of the write-ups that I've seen about the finale, especially in mainstream publications, white writers have, have latched on to that distinction that he made, and I don't agree with it. I mean, 
yes, there's a diff- there's a difference between being insensitive or ignorant or intentional. Absolutely. But does it change the result? He also had like some weird questions about the timeline of Rachel's racism. He wasn't clear if he was asking the questions like as an interviewer, like from his perspective, or he was saying that a lot of people have said that this happened three years ago. And so why is it such an issue now? He just kept saying like, well, it was three years ago. It was three years ago. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. To which Matt said, you know what else was a long time ago? Plantations. (laughs) I don't know what got into him. I think his brother with the gold and the braids. I think he might have got into Matt at some point between the end of that filming and the sit down for after the robes. Because the black man that showed up for filming is not the same black man who showed up for the after show. Like Matt grew a beard and apparently some balls. Because he came out and was not with the shits. He had a little bounce in his step. He was giving some energy. And he had this big fluffy beard that was like soul glow glistening. I was like, who this? But Matt was not with the shit. So at one point, Matt and Rachel are both sitting down to be interviewed. And Matt is just totally giving her the cold shoulder. She's talking about something and, you know, her face is wet, but it's not real tears like falling. So Emmanuel asked, he was like, well, you know, is there any hope for reconciliation? And Matt was like, I don't want to be emotionally responsible for her tears. I was like, shit. This man does not give a fuck. He was real like, I'm just here so I don't get fined. I have a contractual obligation to show up for this event, but I ain't happy about it. Another time, Manuel asked him a question. Matt just looked at his hands. He refused to speak. He's like, Matt, do you have anything else to add? Matt just, this was my final issue with with Emmanuel, who, again, 90% of what he did was good. These are things that just raised eyebrows. Overall, I think he did a good job. But towards the end of the episode, he asked Matt and Rachel, he said, you all may never see each other again. You want to have a final embrace? And Rachel sat up like ready. And Matt just sat there. I was like, just cut this man his check and let him go home because he don't want to be here. I feel bad for him because I think emotionally he was in a bad place. But I was like, sir, you have given the people comedy that they did not know they needed. I didn't know you had it in you. But I was like, why he asked that man who clearly doesn't want to be on this stage and doesn't want to be on this stage with this woman? Why he asked that man to hug her? If the woman wasn't a racist, I would have felt bad for her. Because he played the fuck out of her. She played herself. She played herself. Womp womp. Remember when I was on with Nicole, Nicole Walters, and we were talking about behind the scenes of reality TV and the stuff that happens off camera is 10 times more crazy than the stuff that happens on it for all of the hijinks and shenanigans that producers planned out through this season of the bachelor, nothing compares to all the unscripted ish that happened off camera. that got thrown out into the public. You can't make this shit up. That's why I struggle to write fiction. I was like, life is too damn crazy. And I do want to talk about this too, because it's also come up in another place because these things always seem to happen in themes. But I wrote this recap of The Bachelor and I posted it on Facebook and Instagram. The recap of the after show went viral on Facebook. I say like a good 80% of my audience is black women. 
There's some black men that come in. There's some white women that come in. Most of the white women who listen to me or or read me or follow me tend to be non-racist white people. They're either doing better or they're trying to do better. White folks you can fuck with. Whenever anything goes viral, it goes out to a little bit of everybody. So the Karen white chicks from Bachelor Nation found my post about the after show and they came on Facebook in droves to comment. And they had two main critiques. One, the Bachelor's trash for wasting everyone's time for going through two and a half months just to like not propose and for not addressing his daddy issues, which surely he knew he had before he came onto the show. Fair. I had the same critique. And then their other one, and this is the one that bothered me, was how could Matt say he loved Rachel and then break up with her because of her past? The biggest issue that I think that comes up with her is her attending these old South plantation parties, dressed up in the gown and the whole nine with a bunch of her friends who were also dressed that way. And they're like, if he really loved her, then he would have helped her how to be better. He wouldn't have just left her. Like, in what world is it a black person's responsibility, especially a black person in a relationship with someone of a different color, but in what world is it their responsibility to teach that person how not to be racist? Like, the very least that you could do if you are a person who's going to date someone of another race is learn about that race and not be racist. Your partner's job is not to come in and be like, oh, I'm going to disprove all the negative notions that you have about people that look like me. The woman went to a plantation-themed party. She went to go cosplay, essentially, as the rich wife of a plantation owner, which would make her a slaveholder. Like... This is what you do in your free fucking time? And then you go date a black person and host Emmanuel asked Rachel, he said, you came on a show knowing that The Bachelor was black and you knew that you had these pictures and you'd been to these events in your past. And he was like, were you scared the whole time that this information was going to come out? And she was like, no, I never really thought about it. Like, I honestly didn't see anything wrong with it until it was brought to my attention. And Matt hinted at as much how the story about Rachel's photos and some of her social media interactions, how the whole story came to him. And it was like he went to her and she was like, what's the problem? And he was like, oh, you really just you have no clue, like none whatsoever. And she was like, huh? So he broke up with her, which he should have done. But the white women in the comments, and it's not just my comments, if you look at any of the big sites dedicated to discussing Bachelor Nation because they're like a hive of their own. It's a consistent commentary through most of the white woman comments. I can't believe he broke up with her over what she did. Why didn't he just teach her? I'm going to say this now and I'm going to say it again when we rediscuss Sharon Osbourne because there's more foolishness. There's this meme that's been floating around that says women are not rehabilitation centers for broken men. In that same vein, Black people are not education centers for white ignorance. Racism is your shit. You started that shit. White supremacy is your shit. You started that shit. You got to fix it. I can't fix it for you. No other black person or Asian person or Latino person or Muslim person 
any other person than the people who built the shit. They can't fix it. I know you think everybody with a drop of melon is the equivalent of the fucking help, but I swear to you, we not. I swear to you, we aren't. Now we've got some sad news. I mean, good news, but also sad news. I think I've talked a bit about this Tina Turner documentary that's coming out, I think the end of the month. But the New York Post has some details about the documentary and it's actually, it's empowering. Tina Turner's a part of it and she's sitting down to talk about a lot of her, her life. But she says, looking back at her life, it wasn't a good life. The good did not balance the bad. I had an abusive life. There's no other way to tell that story. She's also battling several health issues, including a stroke and cancer. She had a kidney transplant in 2017. She also revealed that she has a form of post-traumatic stress disorder from the domestic abuse she suffered while she was married to her first husband, Ike. Her husband says of Ike that Tina still has nightmares. He says it's like when soldiers come back from the war. It's not an easy time to have those in your memory and then try to forget. Tina talks about the time that she tried to overdose from sleeping pills in 1968. She talks about her loneliness at the peak of her fame in the mid-80s. She talks about her mother, who wasn't very loving or very supportive of Tina up and through her success. The Post points out that Tina has been loath to discuss her life on camera and said this documentary was painful to make. So she looks at this film as her, her last goodbye. She says she wants to enter the third and final chapter of her life out of the spotlight. There is a bright spot though. She talks about her second husband. He is 15 years younger than her. And she recalls meeting him as he had the prettiest face. It was like, where did he come from? He was so good looking. My heart went ba-boom. So this is her farewell to us. I can't wait to watch this documentary. Even as sad as it sounds. But I love me some Tina Turner. So be checking that out. I don't know if this lady gonna have a job after this week. And it's her own damn fault. Sharon Osbourne. We talked about her meltdown on her talk show last week. The show was supposed to go on hiatus this week. While CBS executives did an investigation and figured out what to do about the show. It was supposed to be on hiatus just this week for two days. It should have been back yesterday. It's on hiatus now until March 23rd. Since we spoke on Tuesday, there's been further scrutiny into Sharon Osbourne's antics on set. Now, last week when I recorded this, Holly Robinson Pete, who was on the first season of the show with Sharon, she tweeted... I'm old enough to remember when Sharon Osbourne got me fired because she thought I was, quote, too ghetto for the show. Sharon Osbourne came back and denied saying it, and she released an email that Holly had sent her after she parted with the show. And that was Sharon's evidence that Holly used to be my friend, and now she's coming out and saying these things. She's making shit up. It never happened. Enter journalist Yashar Ali. He was like, eh, I did an investigation about this show back in 2018. And I was looking into the antics of the show that happened in 2011 with the unceremonious exits of a couple of the hosts. And I've determined 
that what Sharon Osbourne has said is a lie. He was like, yes, Holly Robinson Pete left the show. She didn't know why she was put off the show. She thought Sharon was her friend and she did send Sharon an email after the show. And then she found out later that Sharon had something to do with her firing and had called her to ghetto. And she sent another email after that. Release that email, Sharon. That email has not been released at this time because I did go look. But there was more digging to be done. Yashara Lee, you don't want him on your ass. This man is like a personal daily mail. He came back and was like, what are we going to talk about? How Sharon used to call former co-host Julie Chin, who is Chinese American. She used to refer to her as wanton and slanty eyes. She called her co-host Sarah Gilbert, remember Darlene from Roseanne? She's, a, she's an out lesbian. Sharon Osbourne was running around calling her a pussy licker and a fish eater. Who does that? Why would you be out here referring to your co-workers this way? Oh my God. Yashir had many tales. He posted a very lengthy essay on Substat about all of the things that he found while speaking to 11 sources investigating the exits from the show. He said most of his sources declined to speak on the record because either fear of career retribution or they signed non-disclosure or non-disparagement agreements, which are pretty standard in the industry. Or they're not authorized to speak by their current employers, which also pretty standard in the industry. But nonetheless, he says, I got 11 people to say about the same thing. Yashir also refers to some of Osborne's more public rantings. She, she did an interview with the Daily Beast once talking about Justin Bieber. I remember this. Justin Bieber had urinated in a bucket. And Sharon Osbourne's take on it was, I think he doesn't realize he's white and not black. That's a huge problem. What does urinating in a bucket have to do with black people? How we get into that? Osbourne has had her attorney send cease and desist letters. She sent one to Holly Robinson Pete telling her to take down her tweet accusing Sharon Osbourne of calling her to ghetto. Sharon Osbourne has been on... A kind of apology tour. She did an interview acknowledging Cheryl Underwood. She said that she thinks her co-host had, quote, just as much pain and probably fear as I did. You think you were unhinged and screaming at her and told her not to cry. If anyone should cry, it was you. She went on to say, I got too personal with Cheryl. I should have never said stop her tears. She was hurting as I was hurting. She continued, I love Cheryl. I've apologized to Cheryl. She's not gotten back to me. <laughs> Cheryl is done with your ass. I don't, I don't know if you know that you and Cheryl are no longer friends. Now, Cheryl may get on national TV and talk about y'all's friendship and forgiveness and blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you as a black person, you and Cheryl are no longer friends. Cheryl's done with your white ass. Cheryl's done. Were you ever friends? I don't know. Maybe Cheryl thought you were a friend, but the way you acted with her... You never thought of Cheryl as an equal or as a friend. Y'all never really had a friendship. But any pretense that you have about Cheryl being your, like, good black friend, she ain't. She's not. Let, let that go. She said she understands why Cheryl has not gotten back to her. She says, quote, Cheryl needs her time. Hmm. It's not looking too good for you, Sharon. It's not looking too good for you, Sharon. You know who else is not looking too good for? Kevin Frazier. Sharon Osbourne did an interview with Entertainment Tonight and Kevin Frazier was the journalist. Sharon went on about she was blindsided by the questions. 
She feels like the, the producer set her up. The whole thing felt like a betrayal. The line of questioning broke a pact that the co-hosts had with each other. I guess Kevin was moved because he hopped, he hopped his happy ass on Instagram and he wrote this post. He said, at some point, we all have to reach a point where we can sit together and have tough conversations about race. I don't know what happens next for Sharon Osbourne, but I do know it's time for meaningful conversation, a learning moment. She is ready. Let's not waste this opportunity to move the narrative forward. Let's get, he mentions Chris Harrison. He mentions Michael Eric Dyson, Meghan Markle, Cheryl Underwood, Holly Robinson, Pete, as, as the names of people who should come forward to help Sharon and other white people, I guess, learn more about race. Huh? And just for the record, Frazier's black. Sir, you know better. Fixing white people ain't our problem. Educating white people about race, not our problem. Not our responsibility. I think black folk, Asian folk, Latino folk, Muslim folk, all folk with melanin. We got enough on our goddamn plates without having to add educate white people to the list. We're dealing with a lot right now. We've been dealing with a lot for a long time now. He made this list of white people who done dumb shit, dumb racist ignorant shit, and then a list of black people that have been aggrieved by their shit and once them, after the emotional violence that they've been on the receiving end of, to turn around and educate the white people that harmed them? And I mean this respectfully. I don't think you're a bad person, but fuck you and them for this suggestion. It's just dumb. You know what else is dumb? I'm so sick of talking about this damn story. I'm not going to do it in detail. We talked about Kirk Franklin and his 33-year-old son. They got into an argument privately. Father and son cursed each other out. Son recorded the argument, but only released the part where Kirk Franklin kirked out. You'll only really get that if you're from the DMV. It's our inside joke. But Kirk Franklin and the mother of his son, this oldest son who is in the press right now, is not the biological son of Kirk's wife of 25 years, Tammy. So we used to see in Kirk and Tammy. But this is the mother of Kirk's son. She, too, has been speaking out. So Kirk is on an apology tour. He posted an apology on Instagram, which I thought was was more than enough, way more than enough, because he didn't owe us that, but he did it anyway. And then he was on Tamron Hall yesterday talking about it. Now, apparently, he was scheduled to be on the show already because it was an episode about gospel music. But Kirk thought that since he was going to be there, he wanted to further address the issue with his son. He went on to say about what he said in the video, just in a little more detail, that the issues that he's having with his adult son have been an ongoing issue since the son was a teenager. He did not go into what those issues are. I have my guesses, but really, I don't need to know. And I'm actually genuinely concerned for this family. And I want, I want them to go away and take this business back inside the house. Playing out this dysfunctional dynamic in public, even with the intentions of I'm trying to clear my name or I care what you think and so I don't want you to think this of me or I made a mistake and all that shit, this is a family issue. Y'all got issues. This has clearly been an ongoing issue for around the better parts of 20 years. Get this shit off the internet. 
The public cannot help you. We can judge. We can speculate. We can tweet. And we can write all sorts of crazy shit in the comments. And none of that will help this family that is clearly in crisis. And the public being involved in their ish is making it worse. The son's mother did an interview that's all over Facebook and YouTube. And she was like, I can't leave Kirk out here like that. There have been ongoing issues with our son who we still co-parent because even though he's 32, he needs help and we're his parents. You never stop parenting, which I agree. So it's a long-standing issue. It's got many layers and it's got decades of, of resentment, bitterness, back and forth conversations, all sorts of stuff. The public cannot solve this. I want all of them. This is the child's fault for putting this stuff on the internet. He did it for whatever reasons he did. Maybe he is an emotionally damaged child. Maybe his parents weren't shit. If that's the case, if Kirk and your bio mama really ain't shit, you're going to have to step away from them, sir. Because you putting this stuff out here in the public, trying to like make people change their minds or, or show people who your father really is, all it's really getting you, is some support. But in large part, from what I see, it's nothing but vitriol. Like your father called you a bitch-ass nigga. And everyone's like, you confirmed it when you post an argument with your father on the internet. Maybe they are terrible parents. If that's the case, you got to stop fucking with them. It's, it's for your own sanity, sir. Or maybe, you know, there's more to the story. Maybe they got issues. And maybe because they got issues, you got issues. And maybe y'all all need therapy, individually and together. It sounds like y'all are getting some together. Maybe you need some individually, too. I've been trying to work on the same issue for 20 years. I know therapy takes time, but 20 years? I mean, do what you must to get right. Or maybe get a new therapist. Because y'all using the same therapist for 20 years and ain't making no progress. That therapist ain't working for y'all. That's just my little two cents. But I really do want these people to get this situation off the internet. I see a family in crisis. And because I have a family, sometimes folks act like they got sense. Sometimes folks don't. Families go through shit. People go through shit. Humans go through shit. It happens. But it don't get no better with the whole public weighing in on it. So Kurt and mama and son, we don't deserve this. I know there's a lot of commentary and y'all may think y'all owe us something. You owe us nothing. Your son put this information out there and now it's become a news story and everyone's talking about it. Let us talk. We still gonna buy Kirk Franklin albums. The mortgage will be paid. The college tuitions will be paid. Tammy's hair will be laid and paid for. It's fine. Stop that shit. Kirk Franklin is not being canceled. Stop it. But go handle your family business in the house. Not last and certainly not least, I wanted to talk about this recent hate crime against Asian women in Atlanta. Although it is not being classified as a hate crime because the man who drove to three different massage parlors and shot them up and killed eight people six of whom were Asian women. When police asked him, was this a hate crime? Did you do it because they were Asian? He was like, no, I got sexual addiction. It wasn't a hate crime. And so the police are like, oh, okay, then clear that up. And so it's not being classified at this time as a hate crime. Mass murder, essentially. I haven't seen the media calling that, but I'm like, you kill eight people in a day? I think that classifies as a mass murder. No? The authorities... And this happened outside Atlanta. I think I read 30 miles north of Atlanta. You know how people always say like Atlanta's dope, but once you leave the city, you can't forget you're still in Georgia. I think this is what they might mean. So authorities, they did a press conference and the police captain got up on the podium 
in front of national news cameras and he describes the murder of eight people by one man having a bad day. That's a quote, a really bad day. Let me tell you what a bad day is. It's when you got somewhere to be and you lock your keys in your car. It's a bad day is, is driving all the way to your destination and realizing you left your cell phone at home. That's a bad day. A car accident, little fender bender. Might not have been paying attention. Might have been on your phone or something. Bad day. Bad day. Killing eight fucking people? That's, 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 that's more than a bad day. One of the functions of, of white supremacy, of, of racism, is to hold people of color grossly accountable for relatively minor infractions. Like the whole thing with Michael Brown and Ferguson, the origin of that story is him allegedly stealing cigars from a convenience store. With the guy in New York, I can't breathe. I'm sorry, the names escape me because there have been so many. That whole interaction started with him selling Lucy's on a corner. George Floyd, the incident that ended in his death with the police officer kneeling on his neck for over for nearly nine minutes. That whole incident started over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. We never did figure out if it actually was a real 20 or not. Not that it matters, but I just like as a matter of record, I just kind of want to know. The flip side of that is that you don't hold white people accountable for very serious infractions. Think January 6th at the Capitol. It's an insurrection. Treasonous, some might say. But the people who participated and the people who support them, what's the big deal? Let's just move on. Get over it. White dude goes and kills eight fucking people. Eight fucking people. It doesn't result in death. The police picked him up. They arrested him. They took him to the police station. He sits down. He has an interview. He gets to tell his side of the story. And after he tells his side of the story, which he's like, I got sex addiction. Yeah, I killed these people. And the police captain says, oh, okay. And then he goes and does a press conference. And he reduces mass murder to a very bad day. Very bad day. I, I, I went outside, I ran my errands, and it started to pour, and I didn't have an umbrella. Same shit as, I killed eight people. Just bad days. Hmm. I have an expert that's going to come on the show, and we're going to talk more in depth about the Asian American violence that is happening, has been happening. I feel like the Asian American story right now is very similar to the black story right now. Like we've got Black Lives Matter and they've got hashtag stop Asian hate. It strikes me that, that both of those are a fight just for humanity to be recognized. Black Lives Matter is not Black Lives Thrive, Black Lives Build, Black Lives Be Anything Exceptional. It's just we're operating at the very baseline. Can you acknowledge that we matter? Can you acknowledge that black people's lives actually matter that's like the bar on the floor same thing hashtag stop asian hate 
I'm not asking you to love me. I'm not asking you to like me. I'm not asking you to tolerate me. Can you just stop hating me? Just stop hating me. Like, I'm not asking you to do anything exceptional. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. Can you stop hating me? The bar is on the floor. And then you start going back and looking at, like, all the crazy shit that's been done to Asian people. And it's very different than the shit that's been done to black people. But the root of it all, the commonality, is white supremacy. But I'm reading about all this history and all these stereotypes and the way that Asian Americans are framed either to silence them or to other them or to dehumanize them, especially Asian women. And I was like, wait, these stereotypes sound real familiar. I was like, oh, they hypersexualize you too. So they could turn around and treat you like shit and say, well, that's just how she likes it. Oh, white supremacy is not very creative, but very consistent. It's not very creative. So I have a friend that's going to come on the episode in a couple weeks and we are going to talk about the spikes in Asian American violence and things that we should know about Asian Americans and how even though black folks ain't got nothing to do with this mass murder in Atlanta, that was a white man who did that shit. And that was a white man who got up at the podium and said it was a very bad day. They ain't got nothing to do with black people. Although I have seen several articles in the wake of this mass murder that were like, how black people can be good allies to Asian people. And I was like, but we didn't do this shit. A better conversation would be how white people can stop practicing white supremacy and get their figurative and literal knee off everyone else's fucking neck and let folks breathe and live and matter in peace. That's the thing. Folks really don't want white folks to do nothing but leave us alone. Like, we'll take the STEMI check. Thanks. But that's also our money. Thank you for giving it back to us in a time of need. But black people and other people of color, the ask for white folks is leave us alone. That's really what it is. Leave us alone. Let us be. We can figure out the rest from there if you would just stop interfering with your bullshit. As I was saying, I have a friend that's coming on and we are going to talk about allyship and community. Perhaps the Fred Hampton approach, if you will. If you saw of Judas and the Black Messiah, one of the reasons that Fred Hampton was so hated is he wasn't just trying to unite gangs. He went to the poor white folks and was like, poor black folks, poor white folks got the poor in common. You feel it? We feel it. He went to the Latinos and was like, hey, we got some shit in common. You feel it? I feel it. These white folks feel it too. Let's unite. But we will continue that conversation Because it is ongoing. It is not a one-off. We will continue that conversation at a later date. But before we go, I want to talk about this upcoming Nat Geo series, Genius Aretha. I told you I went to a drive-in and I saw the first episode and it was really, really, really good. But now I have one of the actresses, one of my really good friends, Patrice Covington. She plays Irma Franklin, the older sister of Aretha in Genius Aretha. I wanted her to tell us a little bit more about the series and the behind the scenes of the series. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome my dear friend, actress and singer, Patrice Covington to Ratchet and Respectable. Girlfriend, I'm so good and you're the best part of this day. I'm so excited. Oh, yay, 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 yay. <laughs> Look, I am so excited for you. Like, congratulations on Genius Aretha. Like, this is amazing. Thank you, friend. It is an exciting time indeed. Like 
every day. I'm so blessed, so grateful to be a part of this. In this project, you're playing Aretha's, her big sister, Irma, yes? Yes. And I remember you telling me that this was your first role as a series regular. And when I was doing like my research on you, because like I know we're friends and everything, but I don't know everything. I didn't know this was your very first like TV role. Like first ever, never been on as an extra background, under five lines, nothing. Like first time in front of the camera for real. Why didn't you tell me that? I don't know. I thought I told you, boo. You told me first TV series. And I was like, oh, we know she's done stuff before. no. I mean. No. (laughs) But thankful that I had Courtney B. Vance holding my hand, literally like guiding me throughout this experience. Everybody really just held my hand and I felt completely comfortable. Now I can handle everything, you know, with given the circumstances that we went through during shooting, but also just, I got these people on my side. Like they cannot get rid of me ever, ever again. I love it. I love it. I'm going to go into Courtney B. Vance and Pauletta Washington because she's part of the cast as well. But I want to talk to you just about this experience and this moment for you because everyone doesn't get to live their dream. And like when it, when people do it, I always want to know, like, what is that moment like? In LA, there was a screening for Genius Aretha. Was that the first time you seen it when you saw it on like the big gigantic screen at the drive-in? No, I saw it at home. They, you know, sent me the episode, so I watched a few. But the first time I watched it, D, I literally was watching like it was a scary movie. I had my eyes covered up, a hoodie over my head. Like I was so nervous. But this was my first time watching it with friends. My friends made it a really special thing because, you know, nothing is normal right now. And a drive-in is what we're doing instead of like a big red carpet premiere and party and all of that. So my friends made it really special. We had two cars and uh, we blasted Aretha all the way to the, to the drive-in. There may or may not have been bottles of champagne in the car. Now tell me the backstory for this role. Cause there's, there's a backstory about you, about your audition. It involves Christina Aguilera. As I was here grinding it out in LA auditioning all the time Uh, One of my hustles was singing background Uh, that year in 2019. I had traveled with Jennifer Hudson and then Stevie Wonder. And then lastly, Christina Aguilera. We were in Vegas and I had no idea how I was going to get this done. I normally, you know, I'm at home, my self-tape crew, my good friends, we, you know, we make it happen. But now I'm in Vegas in a Vegas hotel room with band guys. Who's going to help me do this? Like, they don't know how to do this. But thankfully, one of my fellow background singers, his wife is an actress and she had trained him up on how to do audition tapes. And so uh, we got it done. It was a crazy day. We had like no time. Christina runs a very tight ship. We rehearse all the time. We were also leaving to go do another gig in New Orleans in several hours. So I had no time to like analyze it and critique it and like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I blink like that? You know, I look dumb. I didn't have time to do all those things. And um uh, It made it all the more special and made me realize that, you know, what's for me will just never pass me by. I sent in a tape from a Vegas hotel room and booked my first TV job ever as a series regular. When they called you or emailed you, I don't know how these things go, but like when they were like, hey, like this is a go, like what went through your head? I got to call my mom. (laughs) Like (laughs) I heard them, there were tears immediately and I called my mom immediately after. It was, that's just like the call I've been waiting to give my whole family and all my friends and supporters because, you know, they've invested not only money, but time and energy and prayers into this career. So I needed them to know ASAP. And this shooting, now this part of it, I do know. It was a long, long, long process to get from start to finish here. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like that we we started in November of 19. March, of course, we got shut down. We were originally supposed to air in May of 2020. So from March, we didn't know like when we were coming back. At times, we didn't know if we were going to come back. Because some shows were not going to be finished. You know, the producers, the network or whatever just decided to let it go. Um, but thankfully, you know, our producers, Disney and the whole Fox gang, all of them, they were all about this project. They really loved it. And so I'm grateful that they saw it through. But we didn't go back until September. And we had about three and a half episodes left to do. And it was a crazy time. We got tested every day. Every single day we got tested. There was, it just had to be patient. It was, um, it was, it was a nutty time, D. Like it, I will never forget it. But because of all that, I just feel like I can do anything now. Like bring it on. Yeah. It's really good. And I'm not saying that just because I'm like your friend. I just wouldn't mention it. No, seriously. Like I just, I would, I just be like, oh yeah, I saw the movie and I tell you it was good. And I would just never mention it publicly again. Cause I wouldn't diss it, but I just wouldn't mention it. What was this role like for you? Because like, this is not when I met you. This is when I first remember meeting you. Cause I think I actually met you at our friend's wedding. That's a whole nother story. Um, But when I like met you, met you in New York, you were on Broadway um, doing the color purple, you were squeak. What is the biggest difference, I guess, between doing on stage and on set on camera work? When you're doing theater, whatever you do is out there. You know, you get one chance to get it right. Um, there's no take backs. This you can go a million times as long as the director will allow you to, you know, to go back and shoot it again. Um, and give you give you a chance to really warm up uh, the day, really get in there and, um, you know, try different things multiple times. Just try something new. You know, every time you try something new, you get a different reaction. So I loved that part about it being so different. Were you nervous? Girl, yes. The first day I was so nervous. Um, and I actually watched the first episode reminiscing on my very first time on set that day. And um, I was nervous that I would look like I was nervous on camera. Um, Thankfully, I don't think that I did. But um, that first day was just, I just wanted to get it right. You know, I just wanted to, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to impress people. I wanted to be the star that I know that I am. You know, I wanted to be polite and kind, all those things that are actually the most important. I just remember praying that morning in my trailer. I also learned like, what hurry up and wait really means. Wow. Mm-hmm. You could be there for 10 hours and not do one thing. So patience all over the place, but um, it taught me so much and I'm just grateful all the time. You mentioned earlier, Courtney B. Vance, was it, and I know some of this cause you shared it with me, um, but was it intimidating being on set with him? We all call him uncle Courtney. He is the ultimate uncle man, like so loving, so silly, so fun, uh, full of guidance and advice. He happens to be the president of our union also. So, you know, if we had any problems, we were like, hey, Uncle Courtney, can you, <laughs> you know, and he looked out for me um, and continues to look out for me personally now, like truly an uncle figure um, and a super talent, a legend, like I, he played my dad. Like I kept, whenever I would be in these moments, these scenes, I'd be like, no, like Courtney B. Vance is my daddy. 
And he is just the most fun, D. He loved taking pictures. <laughs> he would literally have his camera in his, I mean, you know, his phone inside of his suit jacket. And we had this whole <laughs> joke. <laughs> Whenever we would take a break, he would pull out his phone and he would snap pictures. And he would try to do it like we didn't see him, like, Courtney, we see you. But he would go, no, 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 no. Just stay right there. You're going to want this one. You're going to want this one. And so whenever we took a picture for the rest of the time, it was, hold on, you're going to want this one. Oh, you're going to want this one. <laughs> That's so wonderful. I'm glad he's like as amazing in person as he like comes across. I love like a good story about like a person I love. He's the best. Just the best. And he nailed C.L. Franklin. Like, I think I talked about this in a previous podcast episode. Like, like he, like the, the inflections, the, the mannerisms, like he nails it. It's like almost freakishly, to, it's freakish to watch. It's so good. So tell me about Irma, because I, I know obviously like Aretha, and I think people know a little bit more about Sister Carolyn, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't know about Irma. What should we know about her going into the film? Yeah, you know, I didn't know a lot about her myself. I had to go to YouTube University. Thankfully, people have done like little docu things on YouTube about her. And then I took what Susan Lori Parks, our writer and showrunner, um, had put in the script. But she is the eldest sister of the Franklin family, uh, or the oldest sibling, actually. Um, And she also had a music career. In fact, they all did. Uh, But she backed Aretha as a background vocalist, which was so full circle because, you know, I was singing background at the time that I auditioned for this. Mm. and then one one of my favorite facts about her is that uh, there's a song that we all know and love by Janis Joplin, Peace of My Heart. And Irma Franklin actually originated that song. Really? Yes. Girl, she had records, like good songs. She was signed to many different record labels, some at the same time as Aretha. It just didn't stick. Um, she ultimately ended up retiring from working in something like a social worker type of setting. Um, she dedicated a lot of her time to the community and youth, but she still sang. She sang all the way up until her death in 2002. Is there an extra sense of responsibility that goes into playing an actual person as opposed to like a character someone created? Like, did you feel a sense of you have to honor her? memory, I guess, or honor her life or? Yes, 100%. It's risky playing a real life person. You know, you want to get it right. You want to shed the right light on them and you want to tell the truth. So of course, like I said, there's not a whole lot out there about her. So I always want to lead with Irma, with what I've got, what I know for sure, uh, to keep it as authentic as possible. And then, you know, I'll fill in the blanks with, that's our job as actors is to fill in the blanks, right? So I fill in the blanks. Thankfully, what I had learned happened to be very much, you know, much like me as Patrice. I'm a big sister. My sister was also in the industry. She's a dance teacher now, but for years she danced on tour. And so I know what it's like having a sister in the business. And, um, you know, it was actually my younger sister. We get it. You know, I grew up in a household full of music. So I was able to implement a lot of my real life into the character to fill in the blanks. What did you learn about Aretha working on this story? Because I will tell you that I only saw the very first episode. There are eight episodes. I saw the first one. And at two different points in the episode, like I had to like pull out my phone and Google and be like, did that happen? Is that is that for real? There's so much more. Like the fact that we get eight hours to tell her life story and it's still not enough. We don't even get to tell it all. Her life was so complex, so multifaceted. 
I just didn't really know how active her activism was. The, the art at the times will reflect at the times like, you know, Marvin Gaye with What's Going On, for example. So many songs reflected that, but she was even beyond the music. Like Young, Gifted and Black was huge, but she was really out there, like really, really out there using her voice, not just musically, but speaking and was like with Martin Luther King on a lot of the decisions that he made and her participation in civil rights was huge. And I just continued to be inspired by her activism. You know, last year when um, everybody felt like it was a bit more important at the time to be posting and stuff like that. I kind of struggled with what to post. Like, I'm not a history type of girl. Like, I didn't want to post facts. Like, that's just not me. I could repost all day, but creating things and saying things on my own is just not really my thing. So I was struggling to find my voice with my activism. Um, and then I realized that I could just do what I already do with art and music. And so I did that. And, um, you know, that's what she did. I hope that this show, because unfortunately, it's all very relevant still today. It's going to look just like today in a lot of these scenes. But um, I hope that it will encourage people to just do what you do to activate your activism. What's your favorite Aretha song? Oof. Can you pick one? Till You Come Back to Me is like the jam. Like this lady said, I don't care what you do, what you say, you don't be with me. I'm going to, I'm going to sit on your window pane. I'm going to stop, tap mm. on your door <laughs> in your window pane until you come back to me. I don't care what you say. You're mine. <laughs> what would people be surprised, do you think, to know about Aretha's genius? Can you believe that this lady did not read one piece of music? Like what? nothing, but could teach people how to play their instrument, play piano like I mean, a beautiful pianist and creating chords that musicians who have studied this thing had never heard of. You'll see that in several episodes, especially in regards to Muscle Shoals, the white band that backed her on a lot of things in the beginning. But truly, I, I, when I think about genius, I think about God given. Like, that's what that means. Like, it wasn't taught. Nobody else in her family could do that. She didn't get it from anybody. She had influences, yes, like James Cleveland, but even that was later. Um, so genius indeed, like just full of God's gift. I cannot wait to see this series in its entirety. Like I'm so excited for it just to see you, of course, but to hear the music, see the costumes, learn the story. Because the C.L. Franklin story alone, like I was like, sir, sir, sir. <laughs> Girl, you just wait, just wait. You will, you're not ready. The drama. The drama. <laughs> well, we will see starting this Sunday. Yes. This Sunday, March 21st, nine o'clock, National Geographic. We out there. And it's four nights. So like four consecutive nights, two episodes a night. So we just got to book out yes. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for National Geographic. We're taking it back to the old school. Every night you get a little bit of Aretha. Two hours a night of Aretha. If anybody yeah. deserves it. I mean, the series lasts as long as the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Demetria. <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> That's facts. 100%. <laughs> well, thank you, my love. I appreciate you. I will be tuning in. I love you, girlfriend. I thank you, you for having me. I'm always proud of you. My pleasure. I'll see you Sunday night. Literally, I'll see you on Sunday night. 
on your first TV role. Ah! All right, babes. <laughs> I love my Patrice. I feel very much so like I've been on this journey with her. This production seemed never ending, but it did finally end. And the end result is pretty amazing. I can't wait for you to see what I saw and I can't wait to see the rest of it. So tune in for Genius Aretha. That is this episode of Ratchet and Respectable. We'll talk again next week on Tuesday. There is a drop coming of Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise. I think it's going to happen Friday or Saturday. Please follow me on social media. I'll let you know when it happens. If you do not have your Don't Waste Your Pretty hoodie or your mug or your second edition of Don't Waste Your Pretty, it is available on the site as well as a little bit of merch left for Ratchet and Respectable. There's only a teeny tiny bit left. So if you are a small size lady, an extra small to be specific, there are still tees and Vs and sweatshirts and hoodies. You can pick those up on DemetriaLLucas.com. That's everything. We still didn't talk about Trey Song spitting in them girls' mouths. I think the shit's nasty, but they grown and consenting so they could do as they please. That's really all I got to say about that. That's everything. Talk Tuesday. Okay, bye.